0: Our sermon scripture, this reading, comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, that is 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, and verses 13 through 17. This is the word of our Lord. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hezazanth Mar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord, in verses 13 through 17, meanwhile All Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. The grass withers and the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord, which never fades.
1: Let's pray. Father, it's true that the grass withers, the flower fades, and all that's beautiful around us will one day not be beautiful, and all that's new and popular today will one day not be here. But your word will continue, for it comes from your mouth, and we desperately want to hear your voice this morning. So please speak to us, open our ears, give us expectancy to hear from you. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to start with a thought experiment. I asked you a question, who are you? How would you respond? And uh, I'm guessing if it was, you know, real brief, you'd probably just say your name. Maybe you'd say where you're from. But if I kept asking you, no, no, who, who are you? There'd be different levels that you'd be in a share. You know, if it was me, I'd, well, I'm also a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a son. I'm a pastor. And you begin to get into questions of identity: Who are you? Who are we? Most fundamentally, identity is a hot topic right now in our in our country. We care a lot about what our identity is. And there's various categories now. There's sexual identity, gender identity. Uh, religious identity, national identity, ethnic identity, uh, all those categories are equally helpful, but they're pressing questions asking, who are we, really? And again, there's many things I could say, but most fundamentally, most truly, most basically, who am I? I'm a sinner that's been saved by grace. I'm an undeserving sinner who has been saved, not given a hand up, not given good advice. We're kind of given a nudge. I've been saved, delivered by God alone. That is my identity, most basically. Everything else is secondary to that. But here's the thing, even though that's my identity, I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. Again, not not helped, not given a hand up, but saved, delivered, completely redeemed. There's a tendency in my heart to look to other things to deliver me, whatever that might be. Other things to give me meaning, security, happiness, it's just the human tendency. And so with Israel, Israel also had been delivered by God, unilaterally delivered. So when they were in slavery in Egypt, God came and delivered them. And he didn't do it by kind of, you do your part, Israel, I'll do my part. Like he, on his own strength and power, subdued the greatest nation of that time. He delivered Israel. The parting of the Red Sea, God alone destroyed the Egyptian army and Israel was just there just to witness it. And so even though God had also delivered Israel and Israel's fundamental identity was a people who had been delivered by God alone, their tendency too was to look to other deliverers, other, na- other gods, other nations, whatever they might be. And so God would have to remind them again and again, I am, I am your only savior. I am the only one who can deliver that's what we're seeing in our text this morning. Once again, God is reminding Israel: it is God alone who delivers. So, to give you kind of a roadmap of where we're going, first point is going to be the test. Second is that God alone delivers, and the third is a deeper deliverance. Now to give you a recap of again where we are in First and Second Chronicles, the, so the golden age, so to speak, of of, of David and Solomon is past. Um, I mean, the chronicler really treats them like the ideal. They're kind of the pattern that's being set for the returning exiles. This is who you want to be as king. Well, that's ended, and with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the kingdom splits into north and the south. And uh, and Rehoboam, if you remember, he's kind of a mixed bag. There were some good things about him. There's some bad things, but he's really more evidence that God can use even crooked sticks to draw straight lines. But then after Rehoboam, we get um, so from chapter 12 again to 20, which is what we're looking at. There's eight chapters that go that that. Uh, that happened, and since I'm committed to finishing this series in 12 weeks, we can't talk about everything that happens in those chapters. But in that time, we have uh, the son of Rehoboam, who's Abijah, who's a king, and then we have Asa, who's another king, and those are both relatively good kings. The chronicler emphasizes these were kings who relied on the Lord, who trusted in the Lord, and God provided them military victory. But then we finally come to Jehoshaphat, who would have been the great, great, great grandson of David, and Jehoshaphat gets probably the most positive treatment of any king in first and second chronicles. And in fact, I think you can make an argument that he was the most godly king that Israel ever had, including Solomon and David. And so the chronicle introduces Jehoshaphat in chapter 17 and verses 3 to 4, like this It says the Lord was with Jehoshaphat, because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, and he walked in his commandments. And Jehoshaphat wasn't perfect, he was at times unwise, he wasn't discerning in who he associated with, and God had to rebuke him, but he consistently did this his whole life. He sought the Lord. He did not depart one way or the other, unlike Solomon, who did. He did not have those, you know, the, kind of the great sin of David and adultery, maybe rape, murder. He may have been the most godly king Israel ever had, but in our current chapter, in chapter 20, we're going to see the, the most significant test that Jehoshaphat faced in his reign. So if you have a Bible open, go ahead and, and turn to chapter 20, give verses 1 and 2 with me. Now after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men came, and they told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, therein Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. So you have a coalition of nations who have banded together. They're coming from the south, and they're coming to conquer Israel. Now remember, Israel is divided, and most of the tribes went with the northern kingdom. Ten out of the twelve went to the north. And so Judah is just Judah and Benjamin. So they're a much smaller nation. They are not a power player at this time in their history. And here comes a coalition of nations who it describes as a multitude or later as a horde. And the worst part is, typically when nations would come from the south, they would come to the west side of the Dead Sea. And so you might have your scouts and your watchtowers on that side, but they came on the east side of the Dead Sea. And so there wasn't any forewarning. And all of a sudden, Jehoshaphat hears there's this great multitude coming to destroy Israel, and they're about 25 miles away. So there may be a couple days' march. And we see Jehoshaphat's initial reaction in verse 3. And then Jehoshaphat was afraid the great-great-great-grandson of King David, probably the most godly king Israel have ever, ever had. He's afraid. There's a horde of people. That, you know, this is, okay, guys, this is before the days of, like, international protocol and warfare. There wasn't, you know, the tribunal that will, like, prosecute you for war crimes. Like, if they were stronger than you, they could do whatever they wanted to you. And Jehoshaphat sees this force coming, and he's like, I, this is beyond us. We can't handle this. He's afraid. What do you do in that situation when you're the king? You got like two, two days to this, to this horde of, of enemies who want to kill you come. You're far outnumbered. What do you do? Fear does... You know, we respond in interesting ways to fear. All interesting things come out of us when we're afraid. I remember one time I was camping. Well, let me back up. What do we do when we're afraid? Well, usually we'll do... We'll go with whatever we think will work or protect us. That's usually the instinctual reaction when we're afraid. So I was, I was camping again. Uh, this is a long time ago. I was actually backpacking, and I was spending the night next to a farm. And uh, I asked the farmer. He, had, in his property, he had a stream. As can I fill up water in your stream? And he said, Sure, that's fine. And, um, and it should have been a tip off in the fact that his his property had barbed wire fence around it, and I had to climb a gate to get in. But anyways, I didn't think about it, so I went to the stream. I'm walking back. I have a pail full of water, and for some reason, I have a plastic serving spoon. I don't know why. And all of a sudden, I hear something to my right, and I look over, and there's like nine cows who are running, and they see me, and like on a dime, they turn and come running at me. Now, you may be thinking, "Uh, cows are not scary. I agree. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, but these were black cows. They they just look different, and they huge horns, and when you get close to a cow, they are big, and they weigh a lot. And they're running right at me. And in my mind, I'm really thinking, like, these cows could kill me. And so what do I do? I'm like, well, do I climb a tree? The trees are too far away. I'm not going to make it to the gate. And so I literally pull out my plastic spoon. I'm like, I'm going I'm to get them with these. That, that was my reaction. Like, we do crazy things when we're afraid. And the end of the story, they, they literally came up within five feet of me and then just stopped and just looked at me. It was the weirdest thing. And, and I kind of slowly backed away. But when we're afraid, we do crazy things. It kind of reveals... Parts of our hearts we might not normally see. So here's Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel. And the chronicler tells us he's afraid of what's coming ahead. And what's remarkable, though, is how Jehoshaphat responds. How he responds to this test. Again, look at 3. Jehoshaphat was afraid. And so he set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all, throughout all Judah And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? Jehoshaphat, okay, here's the thing. Jehoshaphat doesn't just seek the Lord. He puts all his eggs in that one basket. Again, you got two days. What do you do in that time? Do you, you like, send help for foreign nations? Do you begin to mobilize your troops? Do you try to fortify Jerusalem? Like, what do you do he says, okay, we're going we're to fast and gather and seek the Lord. But if God doesn't show up, there ain't time to do anything else. Like, not only is Jehoshaphat showing his trust is in the Lord, he's putting all his eggs in that one basket. If this doesn't work, Israel's toast. If God doesn't show up here, there is not going to be a southern kingdom. It's remarkable. But what's interesting, though, so we, okay, From Jehoshaphat's perspective, this would have been just a normal, like, bad situation in the ancient Near East. Back then, nations went to war against each other commonly. The Bible at one point describes the spring as a time when the kings go off to war. Like, that was just, that was part of of how it worked. And so from Jehoshaphat's perspective, it's like, well, this is just a bummer. It's just kind of a regular part of life. But from our perspective, seeing it from God's perspective, we see that God is testing Jehoshaphat. How is Jehoshaphat going to respond in this affliction, in this, in this difficulty? God tests us similarly. It's kind of like how you think of a pop quiz, if you remember this from school. If you're like me, like your blood runs cold because I typically didn't do my homework. And a pop quiz is like, well, yep, you're going to know it. And that's a zero out of five for this pop quiz. Some of you may have been more ambitious and done your homework and you're like, I got this. But what's the point of a pop quiz is, is, is showing, like, are you prepared for this? Did you do your homework? It's revealing what's in our heads. Now, when God tests us, he's not testing our knowledge. But in the same way. He's revealing what's inside of us. He's doing this to Jehoshaphat. Who will Jehoshaphat turn to? Who, where is his trust? The question, though, is do we see the tests? Right? Again, from, from Jehoshaphat's perspective, it could have looked like just an ordinary event, but we see, oh, this is actually God testing Jehoshaphat. I wonder if we see the ways that God is testing us, or do we just view it as, well, it's just life. So when the car breaks down, like, well, that's a bummer. Or do we see it as a time when God is maybe testing us? When we get sick, when our bodies aren't functioning well, are we in pain? When our kids are difficult? Or are we just seeing that as like, well, this is just life the way it works, I'm just gonna get through it as best I can, or do we see it as a fact that we serve a God who's sovereign, who loves us, and he's testing us in those moments to see what's on what's in our hearts. God tests us. But here's the thing. God tests us because he loves us. Some high school teachers, it seemed like they got some kind of sick enjoyment in pop quizzes and seeing the fear in the kids' eyes. That's not how God is. He doesn't test us to play games with us. God tests us because he as our creator knows that until we find all our hope and joy and satisfaction in him, our hearts are restless all the other false deliverers that we run to are, at the end of the day, false gods. God knows that those who trust other things, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Timothy, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. There's nothing sadder than trusting in a, in a false god, whom in the hour you need him most will be absent God tests us because he loves us. He knows there's no joy outside of himself. There's no abundant life outside of himself. And so he wants us to love him more and to love the world less. But if God tests us, are we preparing for those tests? That's another question. Again, a pop quiz reveals are you prepared for this class? If you're not prepared, you're not going to do well. And Jehoshaphat, like he wasn't born the day before chapter 20, this is towards, I mean, he, he had years of faithfully following God, of seeking God, of, of seeking to lead the people well, of doing the small things right, day after day, so when he comes to the day of testing, he's able to stand. God's going to test all of us, in small ways, in big ways. Are we preparing for that? And this is why spiritual disciplines are so important, right? We don't, we don't read our Bible to, to, to put a, a, a notch in our, like, spiritual maturity belt, We do it because we know one day the day of testing is going to come for all of us. And are we going to stand on that day? So we study God's word and we pray and we want to deepen our relationship with him and go deeper into the things of God and deeper into God's heart. So that on the day of testing, we're prepared. So on the day of testing, we might stand. So God tests Jehoshaphat here. And Jehoshaphat's response is remarkable and it's exemplary and it's something we should strive for. Again, look at how he summarizes his posture in verse 12. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's hard for a leader to say, right? No one wants to hear a pastor say, I, I don't know what to do, guys. Sorry. Incredible Humility says, so we're in overhead, and I don't know what to do. But God, my eyes are, in, are on you, and we're waiting for you to act. Oh, may we stand on the day of testing as well. So the first point is the test. The second, God alone delivers. And this is really the main point of the text, and it's the main point of our sermon this morning. Go ahead and look at verses 14 to 23. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, Son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Metaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. And you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. When they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord sent an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed For the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. The battle of the Lord's. In verse 15. So, Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel seek God's face. God responds by sending a prophet. The prophet tells them in verse 15. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Don't fear. Why? Because this battle is the Lord's. Now, if you were around in the 90s, or you just like 90s stuff, there was this brand called No Fear. And they would make, like, T-shirts and shorts. And I actually researched this company a little bit because I was curious what happened to them. And I guess they were, like, involved in motocross and stuff. But they were, like, the, the cool shirts to have. And it kind of communicated this, like, edgy, like, you know... I don't know risk-taking persona. I don't fear anything. I do crazy stuff. Uh, I never had one of these shirts. I did have the the uh, okay. I grew up in a sub you know Christian subculture, right? So we take mainstream stuff and then we make it our own. So I had a no fear shirt, but it was it was no fear as in K N O W, like knowledge of fear. I'm not joking, guys. I had it said no fear, and then it quoted Luke 12 verse 5 again. No joke in the KJV. And it said this. It said, fear him, which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, yea, say under you, fear him. I was, I was a very cool kid when I was in fifth grade. Um, and I'm kind of surprised my parents let me wear that shirt out of the house. But anyways, no fear, right? Really popular brand. But the point of, of, of no fear is an N-O fears, it's like, we, you know, dig deep. Like, your courage comes from yourself. Like, you're a tough person, and so you don't have fear, and you can do these crazy motocross, whatever, stuff. The Bible also says no fear a lot. It says do not fear. God told the patriarchs, don't be afraid. I told Israel again and again, don't be afraid. God sp- speaks to the New Testament church, says don't, don't fear. But the difference, though, is that God doesn't say dig deep and within you and, 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 and find the courage within you. He doesn't give us, like, anxiety management tips. He gives us a logical argument. He says, don't fear, because the battle is the Lord's. Because the, God of, the Lord of hosts of heaven's armies is the one who's fighting on your behalf. The Alpha and the Omega, who's created all things with his breath, he's the one who's in your corner. So don't be afraid. He's the one who goes before you. And in this case, God is literally fighting the battle for Israel. Again, in verse 17, God's saying, You don't need to be afraid. In fact, you won't even need to fight in this battle. And as we see, it's true. Israel just shows up and, and, and the slaughter has happened. God has destroyed their enemies. God alone delivers. And if this is. Well, let, me, let me back up. God alone delivers. But we have to ask, why, why, is, why is God using this incredibly supernatural way of delivering in this instance? Nor, I mean, the whole story of Israel is, is, is God delivering his people, but he usually would use like a king, and Israel would still have to go fight. Like, it, it wasn't God just showing up and doing everything himself. Why is he doing this incredibly miraculous way of delivering now? What's, what's he trying to get at? Again, the sermon series we're in right now, the title is Waiting for the King. And, and the point is that all of the, the yearning and the longing for the king who will make right what is wrong that Chronicles points towards, is pointing towards Christ, the king. And so what he's saying here is a merely human king will never be enough. Jehoshaphat, The most godly king Israel ever had, like if there was going to be a good king to come, it would be like, be like Jehoshaphat. Again, even more so than David or Solomon. But in this instance, Jehoshaphat as a merely human king was not enough to deliver the people from the hordes. Only God could deliver them. God alone can deliver. God alone can save. And if this is true for like small military skirmishes and and kind of, you know, a small part of the ancient Near East, These aren't the power players of the time. These are small nations having squabbles. If it's true in those situations that only God can ultimately deliver and ultimately save, how much more true is it when we look at spiritual matters, which are eternal and universal? How much more true is it for the cosmic warfare that rages around us, whether we see it or not? So Ephesians 6.12 tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, we don't wrestle against people or human institutions or human powers, but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. No human king can deliver you from that. No human answer, no human product can deliver you from that. No human king can deliver us from the battle with ourselves Galatians 5.17 says, The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. We want to do good and we can't. We want to be better people. We fail again and again. Who will deliver us from ourselves? No human king can do that. No human answer can do that. You know, Therapy can't deliver us from that. As helpful as psychology and therapy is, can't deliver you from that. Economic answers can't deliver us. You know, it's funny, the richer a country is, the higher its suicide rate. Education can't deliver us from that. Human answers fall far short. Only God can deliver us in the way that we need it most. And this is why it's so important and so Yeah, important. That Jesus Christ wasn't just a king, but he was Emmanuel. He was God with us. The story Jehoshaphat is telling us is like, yes, you need a king. But at the end of the day, a human king is not going to be enough. Only God can deliver. And so when Christ comes, who is the king, he's not just a human king. But he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Who can deliver us not just from a military invader, but deliver us from the cosmic forces of evil that war against people can deliver us from our own selves and the corruption we find within us. God alone delivers. God alone saves. But an important corollary to this is that that doesn't mean that we're passive. God, God unilaterally saved Israel here, right? They, they literally show up and the, the battle's over. They don't fight. But Israel's not like sitting at home watching Netflix, like, well, I guess God will handle this. I'm just going to do something else. They're still active, What does Israel do? They fast, they pray, and they sing. Look at verse 3 again. When Josaphat was afraid, he set his face to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout Judah. This isn't like the fast we talk about where we're like, I'm going to fast from Facebook. No, no, no. This is the real fast where you don't eat food and you feel hungry and weak and tired. Oh, and by the way, there's an army coming. Good time not to eat food. They fast because there's nothing that pushes urgency more than we deny ourselves things we actually need to live, because we need God more. They fast. They pray in verse 4, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. They assemble together in the face of the threat, not to strategize, not to like deliberate what are we going to do, not even to hear a sermon. They come together to pray and to seek God's face. And their posture, again, is described in verse 13. It says, All Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and their wives and their children. All they have to lose. Is, God, our eyes aren't you. They pray. Then, lastly, they sing. Again, in verse 25, when they had taken counsel with the people, he pointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy Tyre. And as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. We can trivialize singing in our kind of theological tradition. Some of us don't like singing. We're like, that's not my thing. It's kind of emotional. Not really that emotional. Maybe you think you have a bad voice and you're embarrassed. Worst case scenario, we do singing as kind of like the prelude before the sermon. We get us warmed up, right? Get our emotions going. Then we'll get this really inspirational sermon from the preacher. It's going to be great. But if that's all we think of singing, we're missing it. Because look at verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against these foreign invaders. They fasted, they prayed, but it's when they began to sing that God delivers them. And the chronicler wants us to know that. Isn't that interesting? It's when they sing, God delivers them. Because salvation is from the Lord. He doesn't need our strategy, he doesn't need our human strength. And so he's going to use things that show that it's his strength alone. He's going to use singing to advance his kingdom. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29 is getting at. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Why? Because God alone delivers. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Why? Because God alone delivers. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, because God alone delivers. People of Israel weren't passive. They were doing some amazing things. Namely, they were fasting and praying and singing. And if we view that as somehow trite or trivial or unimportant, it more reflects our own misunderstanding of how God really works. Do we really believe that fasting and praying and singing is going to advance God's kingdom? I think within the kind of young, restless, reformed crowd, which a lot of us who maybe came to seminary are part of, we're just part of a Baptist denomination in general, I, I think sometimes we focus on prayer more as a kind of personal formation. We pray to, so God aligns our hearts. That's true. That's a big part of prayer. But God also uses prayer and does things through prayer. He does things through fasting. So you want to see the kingdom of God come in power, and we do. If you have God's spirit within you, you want to see his kingdom come in power. You want to see people who are dead in their sins come to life. You want to see neighborhoods transformed. If you want to see the knowledge of the glory of the Lord cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, if we want to see that, then what do we do? We pray, and we fast, and we sing, and we watch as God does that work. And I'll tell you what, you know, any Christian movement that's built on a different foundation, it may look very impressive in, in the short term, but in the long term, it'll be revealed for being defective. God alone delivers. This brings us to our, our last point, which is all this is pointing to a greater deliverance. Again, Jehoshaphat may be the most godly king Israel ever had. Uh, it summarizes his, his reign at the end of chapter 20 and verse 32 like this. It says that he walked in the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Again, Solomon did right in the beginning, and then as he got older, he wandered. But Jehoshaphat stayed true to the end. He was devoted to the Lord until the end. But yet in verse 33, there's a dissonant note that sounded. It says, The high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. After Abijah and Asa and Jehoshaphat, three kings who were good, godly kings, after over 65 years of being led by a king who had tried to lead them to the Lord, still the people of Israel are not burning their boats, so to speak. They're like, well, okay, I'm going to do this God thing, but I'm also I'm trusting other things. I'm trusting the high places, the foreign gods. I'm trusting whatever it may be. Their hearts are not fully devoted to the Lord, And this this note of dissonance that's kind of struck here at the end, it's going to continue through the rest of 2 Chronicles, and it'll grow and become stronger and stronger until the very end it leads to disaster for the people of Israel. But the message to the returning exiles, again, Chronicles is written to Israels who are coming back out of exile, and they're trying to make sense of what happened. What happened to their nation that was destroyed? What happened to the promises of God? How do they rebuild? The message to returning exiles is that military... God can deliver in amazing ways like he did in Jehoshaphat, but it doesn't address the deep problems of the human heart. God could show up and wipe out all of your enemies, make all your problems go away, give you complete financial, political, social flourishing, and yet still the people's hearts are far from the Lord. We don't just need deliverance from all these other things. We don't just need forgiveness, even. We need new hearts. There's something broken and defective within the human heart. We need God to make us into new people. And that's why Jesus Christ was the king that we were waiting for. Because he's one who, yes, delivers us from the condemnation of sin. Hallelujah. He also delivers us from the cosmic forces of evil that are arrayed against us, but he delivers us from ourselves by making us into new people, by giving us new hearts, new affections, new desires for him, things that we cannot do on our own. On our own, we don't love God, we don't care about God, but he makes us to new creations. Vine Street, if if your faith is in Christ, If you've turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ, you are a delivered people. That is what is most basic about you. You are a people who are once lost, without hope, and God has made you his own. He's delivered you from forces you can't fathom. He's made you into a new people. We are a new people. And he's using this people to advance his kingdom until one day he returns in power. And so go in the peace that the one who delivered you in this way, unilaterally, on his own, in his grace, in his love and his mercy for you, the one who delivered you continues to walk with you every day of your life. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are the God who delivers. And we are a people who desperately, desperately needed deliverance. And we need continued deliverance from the subtleties of sin, from the defects in our own hearts that continue to wage war against your spirit. We need deliverance from the lies of this world that try to suck our attention from you, that try to suck our hope from you. But you're a God who delivers. You have delivered, you continue to deliver. And so our worship and our praise goes to you. We worship you, Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.